in a crude laboratory in the basement of his home. Welcome to the Tech Today podcast, powered by CEO Raider. It's your host, John Maeda. If you're a regular listener or if you read our articles over at techtoday.com, you know that we cover a variety of topics where my interests and experience lie across technology and the capital markets. And today I wanted to talk about capital markets related activities. And some of this we've written about, frankly, all of it we've written about or talked about. So let's start with, with WeWork which isn't news if you've followed all the filings and so forth. The news tends to be around whether or not the company will make it out via an IPO and at what valuation. And the latest that we saw, as far as valuation is concerned, is some number less than $20 billion, which would be a haircut from the most recent valuation of $47 billion. And SoftBank, which I believe is the largest investor, does not want WeWork to go out at a lower valuation because that would be effectively a write-down as compared to the $47 billion valuation. And SoftBank is currently in the process of trying to raise a $100 billion plus fund. So that would obviously highlight that in the case of WeWork, SoftBank's track record isn't great. I think they typically put money in at at very high valuations, and I don't think SoftBank is a terribly sophisticated investor. I certainly would not uh, want to be a participant in either their vision fund or this next fund. We work, as you know, we're not fans of the business model whereby they absorb long-term leases and then sublet short-term. That doesn't make sense under any circumstances. And if you're operating under that sort of a model and you hit an economic soft patch, you're at risk of, frankly, going out of business. And then if you look at the, the filings, the most recent amendment to the S1 filing from earlier this week or last week, I don't recall, but if, if you look at the holders table, Pre and post IPO, all the insiders are, are getting out. So they go from X holdings pre IPO to zero holdings post IPO. So that, that tells the whole story right there. The insiders are just trying to, to get liquid and, and get out of this company. Private equity. Uh, we've written about that and talked about it, how we're not fans of, and this isn't all private equity firms, but a lot of them. They're, they're all obviously taking advantage of the fact that interest rates have been low for a decade. And we're not fans of those private equity firms that leverage essentially a zero interest rate environment and use that, that to acquire companies and go in and, and strip those companies. You know, just take a hatchet to the, to the income statement, which basically means you're terminating, terminating employment. Sure, we agree there are a lot of companies. We've seen it in the technology industry. Where we, that's where our experience lies. There are a lot of companies that can be optimized in terms of operating efficiency. A lot of companies have pockets of dead wood in the company where uh, there are people that frankly should not be employed that are just collecting a check or uh, processes that are outdated and that can be optimized. Oftentimes it's um, legacy technologies and workflow where there is some low-hanging fruit. And if private equity goes in there with sort of a consultative approach, sure, there are efficiencies to be gained. But typically what happens with PE is they're cutting into muscle. So using extremely cheap debt to acquire companies and then strip them of, of OPAC doesn't require any skill. So we're, we're not fans of that. IRR, the measure of return, has been written about. We've written about it as, as a less than ideal measure of performance. What's happening is the private equity firms are using uh, subscription loans, delaying capital calls, and therefore reducing the, the cost basis, and it inflates performance. Simple math. And so Institutional Investor came out with a, an article to this effect a couple of weeks ago. 
I think we first wrote about it back in July, if I'm not mistaken. And then yesterday, uh, Leon Cooperman, who is a hedge fund investor, gave his two cents as to what he thinks of private equity, and he called it a scam. Same rationale. Uh, cheap debt stripping companies doesn't require any skill. And as if, not as interest rates tick up, but if we ever get into a normalized interest rate environment where interest rates could find equilibrium and we stop, we stop subsidizing the economy, uh, the PE game for many will be over. So that's our piece on PE. AT&T, we talked about that in the last episode. So AT&T was one of the, the three companies along with, uh, along with IBM and Roper Technologies that we said were potential activist targets. So AT&T, because it acquired a subscale content asset in Time Warner slash HBO, which means resources, capital is being allocated to that subscale asset. And in the core business, the core connectivity business, therefore has that much less capital with which to innovate, right? So you've got, you've got AT&T competing against Verizon and others, and now it just has that much less capital with which to compete because it's trying to prop up a subscale asset. So Elliott Management got into AT&T for, I believe it was $3.2 billion was what was disclosed last week. IBM simply because, I mean, we've, we've been writing about IBM since 2012. And it's one that really hasn't managed its transition to ratable revenue recognition well. Typically when you do that, or not typically, but anytime you transition your your revenue recognition models from upfront to ratable, obviously you're going to take a revenue hit. And so therefore it makes sense to acquire companies to help prop up revenue. Furthermore, if your business model is transitioning to one of data analytics, AI, Big data was the term that was thrown around in 2013 and 2014. It would make sense to acquire grist for the mill, right? So we, we've written about and articulated on the podcast that IBM over the past seven years or so should have been acquiring information services companies, which would have provided the raw data to feed into the Watson practice. It would have been margin accretive. These companies on the information services side typically have a 30% cash flow margin, a 40% EBITDA margin. In addition to be margin accretive, there would have been revenue growth rate accretive and frankly would have taken revenues for IBM from net negative to net positive on an, on an absolute uh, metric. So these would have included companies ranging from my former employer, Solera, which is now owned by Vista, private equity firm down in Austin, Texas. Verisk, ticker VRSK, who, geez, maybe had a... Enterprise value of seven or eight billion when I was with Solera quickly went to low double digits and today is twenty plus billion. This would have included IHS, which today is IHS Market, which is ticker symbol INFO, which I think maybe has a a market cap of around twenty seven billion. Last time I looked, and there are a number of others. Right? I mean, there's 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 a whole host of guys in the information services space. Most of them around broadly defined financial services, everything from capital market software to banking related to insurance. A number of these companies do a bit of each, and it would be a whole lot more expensive to execute that strategy today. It's still doable, but many of these companies over the past seven years or so on the information services side have seen their valuations triple. So enormous missed opportunity for IBM. In the meantime, they, they spent what was it, thirty three billion to acquire Red Hat. And I don't I don't understand that strategy because I mean the, the what was articulated to us at the time of the announcement was that 
by acquiring Red Hat, it would bolster IBM's ability to compete for cloud-related services. There's no way that acquiring Red Hat is going to help IBM compete against AWS, Microsoft Azure, GCP, which is Google's cloud offering, Oracle's cloud offering. So I I think a management change is what's called for at IBM. And that's not news if you follow us. And Roper Technologies is one where, I mean, they've executed well in terms of revenue growth, profitability, and such. It's just one where we don't agree with the strategy, particularly on the software side with a strategy as articulated by management early this year, I think it was February this year, is to acquire companies that don't necessarily have any commonality as far as customer end markets, but that have recurring revenue business models. And there's a quote in an 8K that was filed in February that's a little bit more specific than what I just articulated. But that's essentially what was articulated. And what happens is when you pursue that type of a strategy, you lose the opportunity to benefit from economies of scale. So let's say, for example, if you are, let's look at, uh, contemplate for a moment, SS&C Technologies. And we'll be speaking at their conference Tuesday of next week talking about artificial intelligence within investment operations. But SS&C has pursued a similar acquisition strategy insofar as uh, they'd like to find businesses that have high margins or that margins can be brought up to the corporate operating profit margin. Businesses that obviously add customer value, businesses that have uh, recurring revenue models, which is kind of par for the course these days. So that that's not anything special by Roper when they say they look for recurring revenue businesses. Most software companies that were founded after 2003-2004 are operating off of the recurring revenue principle. But in the case, getting back to SS&C, most of what they're doing, or all of what they're doing, is around capital markets, insurance, so financial services, and uh, they have a little stub business with their acquisition from 2018 of of DST, where DST has a a piece of their business that plays in pharmacy benefit management. But whether it be capital markets or insurance, SS&C's technology and related services are around valuing assets. So there's a a core theme there. There's a a common thread that runs through whether it was something that was built in-house or acquired. That's the core service. And so think about it. The the, Donate, there's there's an, an abundance of domain expertise in that company because everybody has experience in in valuing assets, even though the asset classes may be different. So that enables you to move people around. If if you're thinking about just you know sort of operations and personnel for a moment, it gives you a competitive advantage because you have deep domain expertise. You're well informed as to what customers may be looking for next, even if the customer is not so sure as to what they want. You're the expert, so you're qualified to make that decision around innovation in many cases. And whether it's stuff, stuff you develop in, in-house or go out and acquire, you're as well, as well informed as anybody in the landscape. Furthermore, when you acquire assets, acquire businesses that have, have shared characteristics with, with your, your core business, you know, in expanding your product and services portfolio, it enables you to go to a customer and say, you know, essentially say, hey, whatever you, whatever you need, wherever your pain points are, we have a product, a service that can solve that business problem for you. So if you're looking for a point solution, SS&C's got it. If you are rapidly growing and as you grow, you need multiple solutions, SS&C has them. 
If you're a large global asset manager, think about if like you're in Allianz, somebody like that, and you're you have asset management businesses, insurance businesses. Well, SNC has capability across your business. So it gets you a seat at the table if you build and acquire capability in all of the different areas of your customer's business. I mean, that's, that's no great insight. So why you would ever pursue an acquisition strategy where you're simply aggregating assets because they have a, a predictable revenue model, but there's no greater strategy around aggregating assets in a particular domain and building domain expertise and, and leveraging that expertise and driving innovation and, and benefiting from economies of scale. You know, I, I, I don't know why you wouldn't make that part of your acquisition strategy, a, a core principle of your acquisition strategy. And so that's the problem with, with, with Roper, which the ticker symbol on that one is ROP. For sure, at some point, the economy slows. You see uh, Roper's growth rate slow. Stock has already traded off, like many technology stocks have traded off a little bit from highs this year. But at some point, it will, it will really start to trade off. And that, that's when activists will step in and say, look, you know, the stock has traded off, and we're not fans of your strategy. So we're going to come in, we're going to force management or swap out management and pursue a, a focused strategy around M&A. Furthermore, we're going to do some sizable M&A deals as opposed to little tiny tuck-ins, which don't make sense when you're 30 plus billion market cap. And we'll get the stock working again. So that's what's going to happen with, with Roper, I predict, in the next, I don't know, several years. I'd imagine we have a slowdown sometime in the next year or so. And I would expect PE to, to or activists rather to, to pounce once that happens. And then the last one would be Paycom software, which is one that I haven't mentioned before. The ticker symbol on that is PAYC. And this just gets to, not to pick on these guys, but it's just a, I'm going to pick on them because they're indicative of aggressive accounting. I've been seeing more of this lately. Um, when, when, when I was at Solera, we used a metric, as did a lot of the information services companies at that time, called adjusted EBITDA. And so we would back out in the earnings calculation, as did all the other companies who used this metric at the time. We would back out uh, non-cash expenses, like stock-based compensation would be the big one, uh, depreciation and amortization. If we did an acquisition, one-time acquisition costs, we would back that out. So those expenses would be backed out of the adjusted EBITDA calculation. And then there would be a reconciliation. So if you wanted to add back, let's say, for example, in the case of, uh, well, frankly, not only Solera, but Verisk, a lot of the information services company used acquisitions as a tool for growth. So if you wanted to say, hey, uh, acquisitions are, are part of your ongoing operation, Therefore, we don't want to exclude acquisition-related costs. We want to include them in our EBITDA calculation. You know, we gave you the, the reconciliation to do that. And then, of course, you always had cash flow to look at, which today seems to be the kind of the standard metric, and I agree with it, for, for valuing recurring revenue companies. And frankly, I think it makes sense to value all companies. But in the case of, of Paycom, which is a human capital management or HRMS software company, a lot like Ultimate Software, which is now private, one that I followed back in 2004, 2003, 2004 as a, as a junior sell-side guy. They weren't around when I was a, a junior fixed income analyst. At least they weren't part of the area, the uh, 
the industry segments that we looked at when I was a, a high yield guy at, at, at Putnam, but on the equity side uh, at, at, at Needham, I spent some time looking at the, the HRMS companies. So ADP, Paychecks, Ultimate Software, Paycom is of a next generation. And you have companies like Gusto, which is private. But typically, the, the way these companies work, there's a, you know, a, a payroll solution at the core, and then there's a number of different modules that attach to the core. And it's software as a service is how it's delivered. But when you onboard a customer, there's typically uh, upfront costs associated with that onboarding process. Some are operational, some are administrative. In the case of Paycom, they say they're largely administrative. I don't, I don't agree with that. In the way companies like Ultimate Software would, would treat those expenses, the, the onboarding, is you would recognize those expenses upfront. So you would have upfront implementation expenses of X, and then once that customer is onboarded and fully implemented, it's just a traditional recurring revenue model where your expenses would include you know, customer support. You would try to upsell customers. Uh, there would be R&D expenses. So you would you know, release a new version of the software, and because it's software as a service, you'd release that version. There'd be one version. It'd be released simultaneously to all customers. So kind of the, the model that, are, that everybody knows. But what's different about Paycom is what, what, what they do is they amortize the implementation expenses. So instead of recognizing those expenses up front, they spread them out over 10 years. And so what that does is it inflates the adjusted EBITDA calculation. Right? I mean, it reduces your expenses from the full expense to a fraction, to one-tenth of the expense. And so if you look at Paycom, what, 2019 revenue, $729 million at the at the midpoint. Adjusted EBITDA, $307 million at the at the midpoint. And that's a 42.1% adjusted EBITDA margin. So I looked at that and I said, wow. You know, at, at, at Solera, we ran low 40s adjusted EBITDA margin, but we were only growing, you know, depending on the year. So I, I kind of started my tenure. We were just coming out of the recession. So we were at low single-digit organic revenue growth rate, constant currency. In pre-recession, that number was, and I'm talking about the 08 recession, for those of you that don't know, the Great Recession. Pre-recession, Solera ran at about high single digit, constant currency, organic revenue growth rate. And so when you're a, I call that a, that's a slow grower. When you're a slow grower, it, it gives you a greater ability to control expenses. There's not as much need for sales and marketing. You're not, you're not chasing growth. You don't need a million support people to get implementations done quickly. All right. I mean, you could, you can be much more thoughtful about how you deploy people, much more thoughtful about expense control. And so you would expect, uh, you know, particularly for that type of business model, an information services business model, to run above 35% adjusted EBITDA margin. But for a company, in the case of Paycom, they're growing revenues north of 30%. So I looked at this and said, how is a company that's growing top line 30% plus, how do they have a 40 Two percent plus EBITDA margin, and that's the way they do it. They're, they're doing it in large part. They're they're amortizing the implementation expenses. So at this company, you've got to look at cash flow. You know, EV to adjusted EBITDA is forty times cash flow. I think they did one hundred twenty-two million through the first six months of the year. So let's say I don't know, they do two hundred and fifty million or something like that for for the full year twenty nineteen in, in operating cash flow. In which case, EV to operating cash flow would be 50 times. So in, in this case, whether it's EV to adjusted EBITDA 
that's expensive, 40 times. EV to cash flow, 50 times, that's certainly expensive. Um, but that's for you know investors to decide how much they want to pay. It's just that I, I don't like the aggressive accounting, the amortization of, of implementation costs. I don't like when companies get cute with how they, how they report numbers to investors. So just be aware of that. Uh, that's all for now. See you all next time.